Well, good morning. Great to see all of you here this morning. I love your church, and uh, my wife and I are just so glad to be here. I love your pastor, uh, Pastor Chris. has such a heart for the Word of God, and he's a great student of the Scriptures. I see him in, in uh, staff meetings on Tuesdays, and I often see him around church, and he's asking different people, hey, what do you think about this passage? Something that he's working on, so, and, and he loves people, and you know that better than I do, and uh, we're grateful for him, and we're going to pray for him in just a minute, and we're going to continue our series that, that I understand that you've been in, in the book of Deuteronomy. And so uh, I want to pick up right where Pastor Chris left off and, and, and try to move forward a little bit, and uh, then he'll be back with you next week. So let's pray, and let's pray for Pastor Chris. Father, thank you for the privilege to study the Word of God this morning. Thank you for the wonderful music we've heard, and uh, Lord, we're just so grateful to be in your presence. Uh, Father, all of us come with with different uh, struggles and different things going on in our life. And we ask you to speak to each one. Lord, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. And as we're going to learn today, you care for your people. And you instructed your people so many years ago. And, and we know that that applies to us today as well. So, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just search our hearts and our minds and the things that we're anxious about, Lord, bring it to mind so we can give it to you. And I pray that you would be glorified today. Father, we pray for Pastor Chris and the whole team as they're away. We pray you'd use them in a powerful way. We pray you'd do a deep work in their heart. May they deepen their love for you and for people. We pray that people would be saved. We pray for protection. We pray for health and safe travel back home. And, and that you would protect Karen and the children as well. And Lord, we just pray you would teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was time to have the talk. I was nervous, and I was also excited, but it was time to have the talk. And I'm, t I'm referring to the define the relationship talk that I had with my wife a number of years ago. I, when I was in college, I hung out with some godly men, and they, they had told me, you know, okay, when you, when you hang out with a young lady for a number of times, and, and you feel the relationship is going somewhere, you need, to, you need to have the talk with her. You need to define the relationship. And you need to express your intentions to her. And you're the spiritual leader, and she needs to know how you're feeling and that you sense God has a future between the two of you. And you need to let her know that just right up front so she's not guessing and, and it's not awkward and, and it doesn't just keep going on and on. You need to, you need to let her know that. And so, uh, so I decided to put that into practice. And so my wife and I had met in Dallas, Texas. She was, I was a student there, but she was a missionary in Beirut, Lebanon. So she came home for uh, about three weeks. She uh, had some medical things going on, and so she was receiving attention for that. And while she was home, I met her at church. And, and uh, I remember thinking, wow, she's really good looking. And, and then we met later that night, and, and um, later that week we went out on a, on a, on a date with a number, it was really a kind of a group date thing, it went really well. We had fun. We saw each other a couple more times while she was home. Then she left, and while she left, I said, hey, can we keep in touch? And so we began keeping in touch, and it got to the point where I, I already knew. I just felt like this is the woman God had for me, and I was 27 years old, so I kind of knew what I was looking for, and God had given clarity and wisdom. So it was just time to communicate that to her. And so uh, we had arranged to talk. On We had been emailing, but we had arranged to talk by phone on uh, Saturday, she had gone back to Beirut, Lebanon, and I was in Dallas, and uh, Saturday for me was a big study day. I worked during the week, and, 
uh, in order to prep for the upcoming week, Saturday was like the day I needed, you know, a lot of the time of the day. But that Saturday, it was really hard to study. Man, I was, I was excited. I was thinking about how this talk is going to go and, and I was nervous and all these kinds of things. And um, so uh, I, I called her that afternoon. I remember exactly where I was in a men's dorm and used somebody else's room. I didn't have a landline in my room, so I used this guy's room and, and uh, I bought a phone card or, or bought something to give her a call. And uh, anyway, had a great talk and went really well. I was nervous, but, uh, she, but expressed to her kind of what God, I felt God was leading us to do as a couple of my intentions. And, and she felt the same way. You never know with these things. You know, it could be that, that uh, the, the young lady doesn't feel the same way. And that's okay. At least you know that up front. Uh, but she did, and, and she was encouraged. And, and it turned out just to be an amazing time. Of, of me expressing my intentions to her and she was excited and we were falling in love and things were going great and that was really the beginning of our former relationship you know when we express our intentions in relationship there's also expectations that come as well you see we had a great conversation that saturday afternoon but what we didn't talk about was our expectations you see she had some uh, some underlying expectations and i did too and one of those expectations was even though she was almost halfway around the world or several thousand miles away, I expected her that she was not going to date anybody else. And she expected that I was not going to date anybody else, right? It's an underlying expectation. We didn't talk about it, but that's just assumed when you are begin dating, you're, you're not going to see other people. So there was an expectation there. You know, in any relationship that we have, there's expectations. If, if you're in a business relationship with someone, the customer expects you to perform a service, and then as the, as the uh, business, you expect the customer to pay. There's an expectation there. If you're an athlete, you're, if you are the athlete, you expect your coach to, to coach you, and your coach expects you to perform. So there, there's an expectation there. If you're a student, um, you, you expect your teacher to teach you. And then if you're a teacher, you expect your student to, to, to give that information back to you in some shape, form, or fashion. See, there, there's expectations in relationships, whether we communicate them or not. And God has an expectation for us as his people. Have you ever wondered what that is? Have you ever wondered, what, what does God expect from me? There was a great movie, I'm sure you saw it a number of years ago, that came out called Courageous. One of the, the church in Georgia that does these movies. They're fabulous. And there's a powerful scene in there where the father's just undergone some tragedy in his life, and he's meeting with a pastor, and he says, I want to know what God expects of me. It's a moving scene. And I, I wonder if some of you have ever felt the same way. Maybe you feel that way this morning. You're trying, struggling, trying to please God, but just wonder, what does God really expect of me? If we, if we just boil it all down to, what, what, what does God want from me? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There's an expectation that God has. And we learned that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And um, we're going to pick up right up where Pastor Chris left off. And um, we're going to learn what that expectation is. Now, you, you, you know this book. Pastor Chris has been teaching you well. So you know kind of the context of what's going on here. Israel is in the, the east of the Jordan River in the, the land of Moab. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They've, they've wondered for 38 plus years in the wilderness. It's time to, for them to, to, almost time for them to go in and take the promised land. Okay, so, but they're getting ready. They're not quite there yet, but they're, they're, they're getting spiritually ready. They're physically in position, but they're, now they're getting spiritually ready. And, and God is teaching them. 
through Moses. Moses is preparing to die by the end of the book. God has told him, you can see the land, but you're not going to go in the land because you didn't honor me as holy. And so God, God's preparing them. And, and Moses has some, some few final things that he's going to communicate to the people before they go into the land. And so God gives him the Ten Commandments. Now, when we think about the, the Ten Commandments, we, it's easy for us to think, well, it's a rule, list of do's and don'ts, and it's just ten rules that I've got to keep. And, but it's so much more than that. It really is revealing the heart of God. It's revealing his love for his people, and it's revealing what he expects of us. So that we know as his his people. You know, God had already clearly communicated his intentions back in Exodus 19. God had had, had given his intentions to Moses. In verse 5 and 6, he says, These people shall be my treasured possession. They they shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19, 5 and 6. So that was his intention. And now God's going to give us his expectation in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now, the, the, the Ten Commandments had previously been given in Exodus chapter 20, okay? But now they're, they're given again. And, and we're gonna, as we're going to see, a couple of them are a little bit different than they were in Exodus chapter 20. And I'll, we'll, we'll point those out as we, as we go along. But have you ever wondered, why did God give us these again? You know, I mean, he already gave them to us once. I mean, did Israel just forget? I mean, wh- why would he go through all of this again and... and, and and, and allow them to hear this again. Well, it's important for the people. They're getting ready to go into the land. As we said, they need to remember they're in a covenant with God. They need to remember when they go in this land, they're going to be tempted. They're, they're, they're going to a land filled with pagans. They don't worship the one true and living God. There's idols. And they need to remember that they serve the one and true and living God. And they're in a relationship and a covenant with Him. And see, a covenant has three um, requirements. It, it, there, it's an agreement between two people, so you've got to have people. So you have, you have God, and you have Israel, and then you have the document, which is the book of Deuteronomy. So those, those three things together uh, signify that there's a covenant. And so God is reminding them, I'm in a covenant with you. And, and Deuteronomy is a very personal book. The name for God, the personal name for God, is used over 220 times. It's amazing. God is just, re- just reaffirming his people. I'm in relationship with you. I care about you. I want the best for you. And here is what I expect from you in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So let's pay attention as we, as we read down through here. And as, as, as uh, Lee read so well, it said Moses summoned all Israel, so everybody's present. And he says, hear the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. But, but, but don't just hear them learn them and be careful to do them that's that's the way it is with the word of god we don't just hear it so that we we know more about scripture but we hear it to take it to heart and to to apply it to our lives so that we live differently so be careful to do it the lord our god made a covenant with us in in horeb which is also a synonym for mount sinai so god has made this covenant with us years ago and 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 the the the, the congregation hearing this would have been had to be less than 20 years old at the time when it was first given so now it's given again and so they're 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 familiar with it but they were young then now they they've they've grown up their their parents had passed away because they had been unfaithful they didn't believe god so they wandered around in this wilderness for for dozens of years and so now god is is repeating that covenant to them verse three it says not with our fathers did the lords make this covenant now he's referring to the patriarchs he's referring to abraham isaac and jacob when he says our fathers that's what he's talking about 
because it, it, the covenant to Abraham was that I'll bless you. That's in Genesis 12, 15, 17. I'll bless you. You'll be the father of many nations. But God didn't give Abraham the Ten Commandments. So he gave, um, he, he spoke to Abraham, but he gave, he revealed himself more personally in terms of expectations for the nation of Israel to Moses. He said, uh, but with us, who are all of us here today, here alive today, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. So God descended there on Mount Sinai and the, the, the lightning and the fire, all of that represented the awesome presence of God. And God spoke. Now the people were not allowed up the mountain, remember? Only Moses and Aaron could go up the mountain. But the people were there and they could hear, they could hear the voice of God. But they, they couldn't really determine exactly what he was saying. So that's why Moses explained to them, here's what God said. But they heard the voice of God. They saw the awesome presence of God. So they knew, they, they knew what was happening. But Moses and Aaron were up there on the mountain receiving the law from God. He said, I stood between the Lord and you at that time. Moses is the mediator between God and people. To declare to you, to, that is to make it simple, to make it clear exactly to you the word of the lord to make clear what god had revealed to me for you were afraid because of the fire because of the awesome presence of god I and mean, they were just trembled and you did not go up into that mountain only moses and aaron went up so this is what god said as he begins the, the ten commandments now the first four commandments deal with god's relationship um uh, the people's relationship to god okay so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the first four and then there's a requirement that comes from those first four. Then the second six regard man's relationship to man. And then there's a requirement there. And then I'm going to give you what God expects of us at the very end. Okay, so the first four are man's relationship with God. The last six are man's relationship to man. Okay, then at the very end, I'll give you what God expects of us. So God tells him, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Oh, man, it was a terrible place of slavery. 430 years in that terrible place of Egypt and the, 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 the bondage and the groaning. Exodus 2.23 says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And, um, and then we have the first commandment in uh, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Just short and simple, that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Before means above. You shall have no other gods above me. Because God is the highest. There is no one above him. God says, you, you're, not gonna, you're not to have anyone else above me. No one or nothing must be before God in our lives. Before me indi indicates my face is really what it means. No, nothing is to be above my face, God says. You indicates possession. These people belong to God. So I'm in a personal relationship with you. You're not have to have anything above me. I'm to be the first and priority in your life. I'm to be first place. I will not take second place. Uh, it, those of you who are parents, can you imagine if, if your child began kind of hanging out with another, uh, maybe it's an adult figure, whether it's a teacher or whoever, and they started calling them mom and dad? I mean, what, wouldn't that be offensive to you? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be hurtful? You think, man, after all, I've invested in this child, and I've, I take care of this child, we feed this child, and they're going to call them mom and dad. That would be hurtful. Now, you're the only mom and dad in that child's life, and it's the same way with the people of God. God says, I'm your God. You're not to have anybody else before me, before my face. I am to be first in your life, God says. 
Colossians 1.18 says this about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Or another translation says, in everything he might have the supremacy. That is, Jesus might have supremacy in our life. Now, the second commandment, I'm just going to walk through one by one, and I'll comment more on some of these. But verse eight, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 are the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, you may read that and think, well, that just sounds silly. Who's going to make something to, you know, make it and worship it? Because because that's normally what, not what we do. But in, in places today, like India and other places in the, in the ancient or in the Near East, that's what they do. They make things. They're, there's idols that, that they make. And especially in that day, they, this refers to anything made out of wood or stone. They would, they would make it and then worship it. Remember what Israel did? They made this golden calf. Remember that? Exodus 32. Like, we, well, we don't know about this Moses. We don't know what's happened to him. We're tired of waiting on him. Let's, let's make this calf. And then they said, behold, look, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now they're worshiping this created thing uh, made out of gold, this, this, uh, this golden calf. That's what we're prone to do. We're prone to worship that which we create. Now, why does that really bother God? Well, first, because he alone is only worthy of our worship. But second, when we worship what we create, it puts us in the place of God. It it puts us in the place of authority. It says, I'm going to make this, and then I'm going to worship it. It means I have authority over this. I made this, I'm going to worship it. And it, it, it removes God from the equation. And we're saying, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're saying, I'm in control here. I have the power to create this, and I, this is what I'm going to worship. And that's why it's such a, uh, God hates that, because only He is God. Only He is, he, we're the created, and we're to worship Him. And um, look what happens when, 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 we, when we do that. You shall not bow down to them. Now, you, you, now we're bowing down to, we're acknowledging that somehow this image has power or is worthy for us to bow down to it. And, and then it says, serve them. Serve them implies commitment. I mean, you serve God because you're committed to God, right? You're here because you're committed to God. And so when we're serving this idol, we're just implying, I'm committed to whatever this idol is. And that's why God hates that. We're only supposed to be committed to Him. And so this is what God does. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, don't let that term derail you. This is not human jealousy. This, our human jealousy is sinful and rooted in envy and focused on ourselves because we want to be the center of attention. Don't, this is not human jealousy. God is holy. He doesn't, he doesn't have sin. Doesn't, doesn't, sin is not in His presence. So this is not a sinful jealousy. This, is a, uh, this type of jealousy refers only to God in Scripture. It means that he's the creator and only he is worthy of receiving praise. So this is a righteous jealousy, not a sinful jealousy. But don't let this derail you because that's what Oprah Winfrey did. I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's, it's tragic. Oprah Winfrey grew up in a Baptist church. She grew up in Mississippi about two hours from my hometown. We used to drive right through where she, where she grew up um, in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. I understand where she grew up. We drive right through there to go to see my grandparents. Small town. She grew up in a Baptist church, and then when she was in her late 20s, she was in a Pentecostal church. And so she was there worshiping one Sunday, and the preacher was, was talking about God is omnipotent. Man, she agreed with that. Yeah, that sounds good. 
But then she said, and God is, a, and then the preacher said, God is a jealous God. And ooh, she didn't like that. Something about that didn't sound right to her. And she, what she heard was God is jealous of her. And she said, whoa, wait a minute. Why, why would God be jealous of me? She, she didn't like what she heard because she was thinking of human jealousy. And so that de- totally derailed her spiritually. And she began looking, in her words, for something more than doctrine. I'm going to look outside the church for, for who God is and outside the Bible. You can look this up on YouTube. You can see where she actually is talking about how this happened. She was 27 or 28 years old when this happened. Unbelievable. Don't, don't let this derail you. He says, I'm a jealous God. That's a good thing because he's God and only he is worthy of our worship. It, it's, not, it's not a sinful, not a sinful jealousy. But notice the consequences of worshiping idols. God says, I, I'm a jealous God. I visit the iniquity, that is, I'm going to visit the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, people in that age, in that day, uh, married really young. So it was, it was common to, for you to see your children in the third and fourth generation. And can you imagine just seeing the judgment of God in your life for your whole life? That, that's what God's saying. When you, when you, when you oppose me, you're going to see the judge, my, my judgment on your life, your entire life. How, how tragic, how terrible to live 60, 70, 80 years with the judgment of God, just seeing evident all the way down to your great-grandchildren. God said, that, that's what's going to happen. He says, of those who hate me. Now, we, we, that, that's a harsh term. We read that and say, ooh, is that, is that really what, I mean, unbelievers, that, they may not say they hate God. Is that really true? But theologically, it is. You either love God or you hate God. If you're not a follower of God, you are choosing, you've rejected him, which means you hate him. But, but to those who love him, it says, showing steadfast love, that is showing compassion, goodness, grace. That's what steadfast love means. Compassion, goodness, grace to thousands of those who love me, that is who follow me, who, who keep my commandments. That's what it means to follow God. It means to love him and to keep his commandments. Because we love him, we want to keep his commandments because we want to please him and honor him. We move on to the uh, to the third commandment. It says you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, you, you've heard this before. And we often will immediately rush to think of cursing in God's name, and it certainly applies to that. But in the original context, it's more than that. What it meant was, uh, it actually, the literal translation is, you shall not take up the name of the Lord your God to emptiness. To emptiness. The original interpretation is, don't use God's name for mundane, unholy purposes. You know, don't make an oath and then put God's name on there just to, to try to add some type of validity to the oath. That's, that's a, it's meaningless, it's pointless. Why bring God into that? It's a secular conversation. Why are you bringing God into that? That's what it means to take God's name in vain. It means you, you, you appeal to the name of God in a pointless conversation. And now you, you've just brought down the character of God. So God's, God's name is his character. Remember what, what God said in, um, in the book of Exodus when Moses says, well, you know, what am I going to say to these people when God said, you know, let me, you shall tell, tell them, let my people go. He says, you shall tell Israel, Exodus 3, I am has sent me to you. That is the name of God, Yahweh, I, I am, has sent me to you, the ever-present God. So he's revealed to him the name of God. 
So when we, we swear and then put God's name on there, we're just we're bringing down the name of God and bringing it to a secular, the holy, perfect name of God, and we're bringing it down and put it in the midst of a secular conversation. It's pointless. It's meaningless. He says, don't do that. Don't, don't misuse the name of God. So I'm not going to hold you guiltless, the Lord says. Now, um, one of my favorites here in verse 12. Um, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, if you look in Exodus 20, it says remember the Sabbath day. It's it's just a straightforward command. Remember the Sabbath day. But here it says observe. And it also has the force of a command, but it's, it's like all during the wilderness years, maybe the people forgot to observe the Sabbath. So God is telling, no, you need to observe it. You need to practice it. And so uh, apparently there had been a lack of doing that. So he's coming back to him saying, observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Now, the term for, for keep, it means to observe it or celebrate it. Watch it. Keep it holy. Now, the term for Sabbath means to cease it comes from the verb shabbat which means to cease it means to, to to rest to cease to stop and it goes back to creation remember when god created the heavens and the earth in genesis 2 3 it says he rested he ceased from his work of creating on the seventh day because he did everything in six days and so he rested so the seventh day was made holy, not because there was anything unique about that day, but it was because God made it holy, because he rested. That's, that, that's what it meant. And so, um, he, so Moses says, Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. It's not to man, but it's to God. So there is to be one day set apart to God. Now, who, who all does this affect? On it. You shall not do any work, so you, or your, so the adult, or your son, or your daughter, so your, now it affects your children, or your male servant, or your female servant, so those under your authority, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, so it affects your animals too, that's amazing, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that is, that your male servant, female servant may rest as well as you. Now, what are you to do on the Sabbath? Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So he's talking about redemption. He says you are to, to, to rest on this day and think about your redemption. Think about all those years of slavery the people of God endured and you're to think about that. And think, Man, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad we're not there anymore. I'm so glad I'm free. I'm, I'm, I'm under the provision of God, and he's leading us. He's directing me, and you're to think about that. Now, Exodus 20 also talks about creation. It talks about re- referring to creation. So there's two things the Sabbath is for. It's remembering uh, creation, God's work of creation, and it's remembering redemption. Creation and redemption, those are the two aspects of the Sabbath. So there's a physical rest involved. He says, you are to rest, you are to cease, but then there's a remembrance involved. So I, I call this, as I've, I'm not, I didn't come up with this, I've read this before, but it's called physical rest and spiritual rest. That's what we're to do on the Sabbath, physical rest and spiritual rest. Now, physical rest is, is, is we know what that, that's relatively easy sometimes. Unless you have small children, then it gets complicated. But the spiritual rest 
is, is, is even harder. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, what about as Christians? How does this apply to us? Because that's what we're thinking. Okay, but wasn't this the Old Testament? Wasn't this the Mosaic Law? And, you know, but what about us today? Are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? And there are different views on this. I'm just going to share with you my interpretation. First, the Sabbath is the first day of the week as Christians because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So we worship. We're not here on Saturday. We're here on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, Revelation 1.10, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So I interpret that as Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 12.8 that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So there's not a list of rules and do this and don't do that, or can I go here, can't go there. Jesus didn't give us a list of rules of what we should and shouldn't do. But as we look at Scripture here in Deuteronomy 20, we're looking at physical rest, spiritual rest, I think this applies to us today because it goes back to creation. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2-3. It's not just given in Mount Sinai and we just, well, you know, we weren't there and we're not Israel and so it doesn't apply to us. No, it goes all the way back to creation. God rested at creation. And so if we're to be like him, then I interpret that we're to be practicing a Sabbath. So what, what, so what does that really mean? I want to just get really practical. What does that look like? Because some of you may work seven days a week or you, you have a schedule where you have to work some Sundays and you think, how do I do that? Well, the principle is one in seven, okay? The principle is one day out of seven. So, so for me, it's, it's Friday night and a good bit of Saturday, okay? But, but uh, you know, with kids and their sports and it doesn't mean we just sit at home all day and lock yourself in a room and I'm having my Sabbath. That, that's, just, that's just not reality. It just doesn't happen. There's, there's other things to do. What it does mean, as it says here, six days you shall labor and do all your work. That means on the seventh day, you're not doing work. Okay? That means you turn off those work emails. You're not doing your work. Okay? Guys, put the phone down. You're not sitting there trying to, you know, do business proposal. You get, there has to be some distance. You've got to separate yourself. And I understand there's special projects sometimes, or there's conferences, or there's big things coming up. That sometimes, you, sometimes you can't avoid it. That, that's understandable. That should be the exception, not the rule. There's got to be some distance. Here's what happens when you don't have distance. Here's what happens. If there's never a break from the routine of life, we get tired, we go bitter, and we begin to resent our schedule and responsibilities. Don't we? Don't you? I mean, that happens to all of us. We begin to, man... Why, why do I have to do this? I'm just so tired. Why can't they give me a break at work? We begin to resent our schedules instead of enjoying the work God's given us. And so for me, I carve out just a little bit of time on a, on a Saturday afternoon, and you can get the free app on your phone. I go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, the BT app, and I worship with them for about an hour. And it's just, I'm not preparing a sermon. It's just straight worship time. They do music for about an hour. I just worship and pray and worship and pray and listen and it's incredible. And you know what? By the end of the Sabbath, man, I'm ready for a new week. I'm ready for the week. I, I'm excited. And I'm looking forward to it. And it rejuvenates me and encourages me. So I want to encourage you to do that. And you, you, your Sabbath may look different. But I want to encourage you. Just have that time of, of spiritual rest. It's not just physical rest. It's spiritual rest. And it's not just, you know, taking a nap. That's great. But there's got to be spiritual rest where you're remembering you think, God, thank you for saving me. You're remembering, God, thank you for creating this world. Or you're remembering the, the word of God that he's spoken to your heart that week. And all of a sudden now you're rejuvenated. 
All of a sudden now, man, you're, I, I'm excited to be doing the work that God's called me to do. The first four commandments, as we've talked about, this is part of our responsibility to God. We're to set apart a day. We're not to take his name in vain. We're not to make idols or anything that, that we're to worship besides him. And we're not to put anything else before him. Those are the first four commandments. So God's expectation for us, which we're going to get to, that expectation requires us to keep him first. That expectation requires, just real simple, this requires us to keep him first. That is, he is to be the first priority in our life. Every, every morning, every night, he is the first priority all throughout the day. Jesus is the first priority in our life. Now, why, why is this important for Israel? They were going into a land filled with idols. The Canaanites, they were agricultural people. The Israelites didn't know anything about agriculture. They'd been wandering in the wilderness. They didn't know how to take care of crops. And so the, the Canaanites depended on the gods of fertility for, for their crops. And so God's telling them, you're going in this land. You don't know what you're doing. And you've got to depend on me, he's telling them. You, you, can't, you can't look at their gods. You can't depend on that was not an option. The Israelites to look at the gods of fertility. They had to depend on him. They were going into an unknown place, uncharted waters. And maybe some of you feel that way. I'm going, a, I'm going a direction I've never gone before. I'm starting this new business. I don't know what I'm doing. I, we're having a child. I don't, I don't, we don't know how to be parents. And, and all of this is new. We're going into retirement. We don't know what that means. And you're to keep God first. And God will show you. Just, that's what he's telling his people. You're going into this new, new, new season of life. You've got to keep me first. And God says, I will show you what to do. I will direct you. I care for you. I love you. I want the best for you, but you've got to keep me first. And that applies to all of it, no matter what season we're in. We've got to keep him first. This past week, uh, you probably heard this past Monday, that uh, Mr. Truett Cathy passed away. And um, I've just heard what a godly man he was. 93 years old. And um, as you know, the founder of what we know as Chick-fil-A today. But Mr. Cathy, before Chick-fil-A became Chick-fil-A, he, he, he had a restaurant in 1946 in Hapeville, Georgia, and he called it the Dwarf Grill, and he sold hamburgers. And it took him about four years to develop the, the, uh, the boneless chicken recipe for his chicken, almost four years. And then he, he developed that, and in 1967, he opened up the first Chick-fil-A in the Atlanta area in a mall. And, uh, but even all the way back in the Dwarf Grill, he was closed on Sundays. And people just said, you know, you could lose billions per year. You know, eventually they would say that because you're, 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 you're closed on Sunday. This is what he said uh, in his early days. He said, if it took seven days to make a living with a restaurant, then we needed to be in some other line of work. I mean, it's just real clear. I mean, I'm not going to open on Sundays. And if that's what it takes, then I'm, I'm going somewhere else because it's more important to me to honor God than to make, to, to make money. So he stuck with his convictions, op operated six days a week. And um, I mean, how many times have you been out on a Sunday and thought, man, I'd love Chick-fil-A, but, but I can't do it, you know? It's, you know, whether you're traveling or after church, man, I'd love to Chick-fil-A, but it's not open. But that, that's a good thing, they're not open. Uh, in uh, 2013, the company had sales of $5 billion. In 2012, it topped KFC as the top U.S. chicken chain. Isn't that amazing? They do in six weeks, in six days, more than what others do in seven. It's unbelievable. And I just think it's the favor of God on that business. I mean, yeah, they have a great product and great people, and the service is normally really good. But God's favor, I think, is on that, is on that business because they put him first. 
And God says, I'm going to give you more in six than these other people have in seven. This is what, let's know what Mr. Cathy said. This is an interview with um, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He said, people appreciate you being consistent with your faith. It's a silent witness to the Lord when people go into shopping malls and everyone is bustling and you see that Chick-fil-A is closed. It's a silent witness, he says. And your life is a silent witness as well. Sunday afternoon, Saturday, whatever time you, you carve out to say, this is going to be my Sabbath time. I'm not going to be out cutting the grass. I'm not going to be out doing this. You say, this is, this is my silent witness. I'm just going to carve out some time and I'm just going to read scripture. I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen to a sermon, whatever, whatever it is. I'm going to re- listen to music that encourages me. And I'm going to get rejuvenated. And I'm going to give that bad attitude I have about my work, I'm going to give that to God. And I'm just going to let God change me. And you know what? We'll be more productive in those six days. Because we know that Sabbath time is coming. You think, man, I can't wait. I'm going to have this downtime, so I've got to get my work done so I can have that, that downtime. So let's put God first. Now, we've got to get through the rest of these commandments here. So um, verse 16, he says, Honor your father and your mother. Verse, this is the fifth commandment. As the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Honor. Honor your father and your mother. This word means honor, means to regard as heavy. It means to weigh someone down with respect or admiration. It means to consider as heavy. That is, you are to to consider your mom and your dad, you're to weigh them down with respect. It's like, I I just pictured like a brick. Like you're just, they're just sitting there holding all these bricks and you're just just laying brick upon brick of admiration and respect and appreciation and you're saying Man, i love you so much thank you for all you're doing thank you for all you sacrifice you're just you're laying it on them and it doesn't say whether they're deserving of it or not some of all of us some of you maybe have had difficult relationships with your mom and dad and you think i, I don't know how can i do that how can i, I mean they're not worthy of it I, they haven't been nice to me they didn't they didn't take care of me i'm just telling you what the word of god says it says honor them weigh them down weigh them down with respect with admiration honor them appreciate them and you know as as a teenager or even sometimes a young adult it's easy to criticize parents he said well they didn't they didn't do this or they didn't let me go here and well i just wish they would have done that it's, it's so easy to criticize right until we become parents you think golly my, i think my parents did a pretty good job you know because it's, it's hard it's challenging and there's there's so many places in the road you just think god i just need wisdom i don't know what to do and so we're to, we're to honor them, we're to appreciate them and encourage them, weigh them down. I can't imagine having better parents. When I was born, my, both of my parents were school teachers. And um, about uh, when I was three, my dad took another job as a salesman. So we moved and he began working as a salesman. My mom continued as a school teacher until the age when I was, when I was going into first grade. My mom had been teaching 10 years in the Mississippi public school system. Now, she could have continued another 15 and probably retired at 25 years and had a good retirement and have some things saved up and, and, and probably made more money in a public school. But you know what? They wanted to send me to a private school. They thought this would be the best opportunity for him. So she took a job at the private school. She was a music teacher. So first through fifth grade, my mom was my music teacher, and she was there. And, and I, I, I thought about that this week and thought about what that must have meant for her. I mean, she's still teaching. She's still at the same school today still teaching and i think of all those years she could have been retired she could have stayed in public school 
and been retired and probably made more money and they took my tuition out of her check. She probably didn't make hardly anything. Then my sister came along eight years later and she did the same thing for her. I think and I just thought about that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, at the time I didn't I didn't get it. But now I think all that she gave up just so she could be my teacher. And so I, I wrote her this week and I just said, you know, I just I, I'm just I'm grateful. And I just I just want to thank you. And uh, and she wrote back. She said that, you know, that means so much to me. She said, you know, I just I just saw that as an investment in your life. And I, I, I didn't think about it that way, but that was her way of just investing in my life, just being around. And she did these plays and musicals and, she, you know, we and, and I got to be around my mom all those years. And then the downside is when you get in trouble at school, you get in trouble at home. And so there were, there were some downsides there, too. But I, I think about that and I, I, I never got that as a child, but I, I get it now because, you know, we, we think about retirement. We, we look forward to these things. And and now my mom's still teaching there. You know, Ephesians 6, 2 says to honor your father and your mother. And then parentheses, it says this. This is the first commandment with a promise. What's the promise? Well, it says that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Why, why is that? Why is there a promise? Because if we don't learn to honor our parents, we won't honor other people. If we don't learn to submit to our authority in our home, we're not going to submit to anybody else. I mean, it's just real simple. If we don't learn to honor our parents and submit to them, you're not going to have trouble with your boss. You have trouble with your in-laws. You have trouble with a pastor. You have trouble with any authority figure in your life because you're not going to submit to them. You're not going to you're not going to know how to honor them because you don't you don't appreciate their position. And so our job as parents is to and it's hard but to teach them to honor authority because God has placed that authority over them. God has placed government authority over us. He's put authority in church. He's put authority in the home. He's put authority in the workplace, and we're to honor authority. So God says it may go well with you. And so if you don't learn it in the home, you get out and you have attitude with people. Your life's not going to be long. I mean, it may be long in terms of years, but it's not going to be enjoyable because you're going to have all kind of conflict and you don't know how to treat people and you're going to resist authority. So God says, honor your parents, honor them. And when you do, you, you learn to respect authority. You learn to respect their position and it's going to be well with you. There's going to be peace. There's going to be harmony in relationships, even when you don't agree with someone. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It just means I'm going to weigh you down with respect and with admiration. And um, we're, we're, I'm going to honor you. So I, it's going to go well with you. And then the next, the ones that come after that, come in real kind of rapid fire. Verse 17 says, you shall not murder. And this is talking about premeditated murder here. Um, we, we're not to take someone else's life. You know, God is the creator of life. So he says, you're, you're, you're not to murder. You know, we, we, we're not the creator. We're not the ones who decide when someone's time is up. Now, there's other, you, you may wonder, well, what about war? What about capital punishment? What about, those things are spoken about in other places in Scripture, like unintentional murder. It's also called manslaughter. That's in Deuteronomy 19. It talks about that. If someone's murdered, kills someone unintentionally, then, then they're to be able to flee to a, a city of refuge and be protected because they, did, they didn't mean to. It was an accident. It happened. So their life is to be protected. And then war, that's in, in Deuteronomy 20, where it talks about, we call it the just war theory. There are times when war is necessary 
and, and, and acceptable. And that's in Deuteronomy 20. But here it's talking about premeditated murder. That is, I've thought about this and I planned it and I'm going to kill this person. God says, you're not to do that because you're not the creator of life. We're not. He, he is. Then he says, the next one, you shall not commit adultery. And this is talking about uh, uh, murder violates the human, human life and adultery violates the most sacred relationship among humans, and that's marriage. It means to be unfaithful to your spouse. Um, and this is so interesting. The figurative sense of this term means to abandon one's faith and pursue other gods. So this term can be used figuratively. It means to walk away from the faith and pursue other gods. That's what this term adultery means. So in the context of marriage, that's what it means. I'm going to walk away from this marriage. I'm going to pursue my selfish desires. That's what adultery means. I'm going to walk away from this faithful, this commitment, this covenant that I made. I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to pursue what I want to do. Because I think this will make it happier. She or he will fulfill me the way this person cannot. And that's what we think. And, and, and the reason it's mentioned here is because it represents unfaithfulness in a relationship based on commitment. And God is saying, I, I'm faithful to you. So don't, don't commit, a, don't, don't represent unfaithfulness when I'm faithful to you. This, you get, there's a relationship based on commitment. He says, don't do that. Then he says, you shall not steal. Talks about taking something from somebody else. Murder violates life. Adultery violates marriage. Stealing violates someone else's property. You know, stealing is wrong because one's possession, it represents time. It represents labor. It represents money. Things that people have, they had to work for it or, or maybe someone else worked for it and gave it to them. It represents time they put into those things to take care of them. And so when we go and steal something, it just says, I have no regard for your things. I'm going to take it for myself. And it just said, I'm putting myself before you because I, I, I've got needs. I'm going to meet money, so I'm going to take what's yours, and it's going to become mine. No regard for other people. And it affects not just the person you stole it from, but it can also affect other people. Um, when I was in high school, I had this little pickup truck, and I had these speakers in the back, and I was going through a little redneck face, so I got these speakers, and, and uh, I remember they were $250, and my parents paid for them, and someone stole them one night. And, um, uh, you know, it was a big deal at the time, but that affected my parents because they paid for them. Now they're out $250. And um, so it doesn't just affect the person, but it goes beyond that. And it can affect others. Um, Philippians 2, 3, you know this verse well, it says to count others more significant than yourselves. So when we steal, we're saying, no, I'm more important rather than this person. Let me speed up. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the idea there is this is a legal scene. This is like a courtroom scene, and you're, you're legally testifying, and you're, you're, you're assassinating someone else's character. That, that, that's, what it, that, that's the original picture. So don't, 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 don't say what is untrue against your neighbor because it assassinates their character. And... Um, but it, it goes beyond that to talk, not just in the courtroom scene, but in, in everyday life when we're not to, don't assassinate someone else's character because it, it brings them down. Now you've caused someone else to think bad about that person as well. It says don't, don't do that. Highly esteem others. In, find a way to encourage someone else in, instead of trying to talk bad about them. Find a way to build them up or point out a good quality instead of just, instead of hurting them. Then it says, verse 21, last commandment. 
and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, this is the last commandment, but it doesn't mean it's the least important. In fact, I, based on what I've looked at, I, I think it really represents all the other nine right here. And I'll, I'll explain to you why. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Now, if you look in Exodus 20, house is first and wife is second. But here, wife is first and, and house is second. Why is that? Because a wife is a man's most important possession. This is the most valuable possession. You're going to take his wife. You've taken, you've taken everything. You've taken his best. You've taken what's most important to him. You shall not covet. That term covet has, has this talk about this inner desire. This, this has sexual overtones to it. This lust is really what it is. Don't, don't lust after your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire. Desire is a different word there. But it's, it's, it's very similar to the word covet. Don't, you know, don't, don't desire his house. Don't have this inner, this inner longing. Don't have this craving for, for, for your neighbor's house. Man, if we could just have that house. Oh, I bet they have so much room in there. Oh, they have a bonus room. Oh, man, I would just love that space. I mean, all oh, the kids, you know, it doesn't mean you can't compliment someone's house. But it says don't desire it. Don't begin craving. Man, you know, if we could just move in there. Oh, man. And then it goes on. His, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his now his animals. Anything, anything that is your neighbor's, don't, don't long for it. Don't, don't have this inner craving as, as well. And you say, well, why is this so wrong? Because it's the first step towards sin. It's the first step. When it begins in the heart, it's going to lead to behavior. When it begins in the heart, if we don't check it, if we don't quote Scripture against it, if we don't confess it to God, it can lead to the things that are mentioned right above it. Murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, because it begins as an inner desire. And if we don't check it, if we don't cut it off and say, no, 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 wait a minute, this is not from God. These desires are not pure. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8, if you, if you look with a woman with lustful intent, it's considered adultery. So God is interested not just in our behavior that is mentioned here, He's interested in the heart. And that's why I think that all of, all of these other nine commandments are really really uh, wrapped up in, in, in this coveting, this inner, this inner longing, because God's interested in our heart. Uh, Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Listen to what it says about covetousness, which is idolatry. Coveting is idolatry because it's putting something else before God. It says, I've got to have this. I, I, what God has given me is not enough. And so I've got to have more. I've got to have this, this man. I've got to have this woman. I've got to have their, this house. I've got, I've got this more, more, more. And it's saying God is not sufficient. And it's idolatry. That's what coveting is. And we can be prone to that. So is there something that you're, you're coveting this morning? Someone else's spouse? Someone else's education? Someone else's income? We're just, you know, we're, we're just saying, God, you're not enough. You're not enough for me. I've got, I've got to have more. Second, God's expectation for us requires us to honor others. Okay, God's expectation requires us to put him first, but his expectation also requires us to honor others. Requires us to honor others. Now, what is, so, so what, what does God expect? Let me wrap this up real quick. What does God expect from us? It's real simple, just two words. Complete faithfulness complete faithfulness it's so simple 
complete faithfulness. That, that's what God wants. And I, say, I use the word complete because, because of what we just talked about, the inner, the inner desires. God wants our inner desires to honor Him. But He also wants our behavior and our worship to honor Him. So complete. God wants complete faithfulness. He wants us to be faithful to Him. He knows we're not going to be faultless. He, he remembers, as Psalm 103 says, He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we're created. He remembers, He, he knows we have a fallen sinful nature. And yes, he, He's commanded us to be holy, and, and hopefully in the Christian life we're moving toward Christ's likeness. That's the goal. But we're still fallen. We still struggle. We still sin. And so we're not going to be faultless, but we can be faithful. We can be faithful. We can put Him first every day. We can say, God, I'm gonna, I want to be faithful. With all of my heart, I want to be faithful to you today. I'm not going to put anything else or anyone else before you. My, my inner desires, God, I want them to be pure. I'm not, I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to say you're not enough. I'm going to say, no, you are enough. You are sufficient. God, I, I'm going to be faithful you, to you today. Jesus is perfect, so Jesus' perfection is credited to our account. So God wants us to be faithful to Him. Now, in order to be faithful to God, first you've got to have a relationship with Him. If, if you don't know Him, if you've never placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't be faithful to Him. Because in the theological sense, you hate Him, you've rejected Him. But today you can, you can be a lover of God. And that starts with placing your faith in Christ as your Savior. First, uh, Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So we place our faith in Christ, and we're forgiven, and we're free, and we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Has God put something on your, on your heart today? Has he, put his, has he touched something in your life that you say, God, maybe I'm not being faithful with you, faithful to you in this area. Maybe I'm coveting. Maybe I'm just not happy where I'm at in my job or this situation in life, and I'm coveting, and I'm just wishing I could be somewhere else. And um, God, I'm just working seven days a week. I'm not taking any time off, and I'm just frustrated. Has, has God put something on your heart today? Sandy and Triet, I'll close with this illustration. Sandy and Triet had expectations of a great trip ahead of them. They were in Los Angeles, and they wanted to go to Senegal, West Africa. And the name of the town they wanted to go to is Dakar, D-A-K-A-R. They wanted to go to Dakar, okay? So they made reservations through Turkish Airlines to go to Dakar, and they were going by way of Istanbul. And um, so they, the airport code where it says where they were supposed to go said D-A-C. Now, they're going to Dakar, it said D-A-C, so they thought, hey, it must be Dakar. And so um, they began traveling. Their first flight to Istanbul uh, was great. They were going to uh, change planes and then fly from there to Senegal, West Africa, to Dakar. So they got on this second flight, and the, the, the uh, stewardess said that they were going to Dakar. And they said, um, maybe that's just how Dakar sounds in a, with a Turkish accent. So that's what they thought. So they, they went to sleep, and what they didn't know is that the plane they were on was going to Bangladesh. And so uh, Sandra, Sandy woke up at one point and you know how they have the screens and they show you where you're flying? And she noticed they were flying over the Middle East instead of, you know, flying over to West Africa. And uh, so they ended up in Dakar, Bangladesh. They were supposed to go to Dakar, Senegal, West Africa. They ended up in Dakar, Bangladesh. It was an, it was an honest mistake, but they had one expectation, 
And that expectation was unfulfilled. They didn't get to where they were going at that moment. And I just wonder if some of you have had this expectation. This is not what God has. This is not what God expects. God expects faithfulness. And maybe some of you have had this expectation. Maybe God expects performance. Maybe God expects perfection. And you're frustrated because you're trying to be perfect. And you're trying to perform for God. If I could just please him. If I could just take on one more thing. And you're frustrated. And God says, I expect faithfulness. I don't expect perfection. Only Jesus is perfect. I don't expect for you to perform. I expect you to love me. I expect you to be faithful. So I want to encourage you from the word of God today. Just be faithful to him. Honor him. Put him first. Honor him in the way you treat others. Be faithful to him. Would you bow your heads with me?